So we're beginning this new series from the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a great book for this time in the church year because in Lent it will address Christian living and at Easter both the Lord's Supper and the Resurrection, at Pentecost the gifts of the Holy Spirit and there are even references in this book to meat. So we might squeeze in a bacon sundae at some point. The, uh, the scholar David Wenham believes in fact the meat they ate could have been a kind of sausage. So there's genuine scholarship here behind this idea. 1 Corinthians is going to function for us, in a sense, like a lectionary in one book and an excuse to use the church kitchen all at once, but that's just a bonus. That is not the real reason we're in this wonderful book. The main reason that we'll be walking through the whole of this letter over four or five months is because in many ways, Corinth was a town like ours. And these people were living at a time like ours. And therefore, much of what they were facing there and then, our church could well be facing in the coming years as well. So Corinth. Corinth was the biggest and the brightest city for miles. It was the confluence of regions. Imagine the northeast, the midwest, and the deep south colliding in one place, and that's Corinth. There were benefactors in Corinth that had its Carnegies and Mellons who'd built up the city. There were sports stars. They had a sort of poor man's Olympic Games, and so sporting heroes would come in and compete. They had their Roethlisbergers and their pickets, and who knew that he'd actually come good in the end and be quite a decent guy? They had people they loved and they looked up to. And Corinth loved rhetoric. They loved speech. People came from all around to perform in Corinth. There were philosophers and speakers and teachers like the, the Pittsburgh Speakers series. If they had concerts, Taylor Swift and Guns N' Roses would have come into that town. And while they were being entertained, entrepreneurs were coming into Corinth as well. They'd built up businesses. Amazon and Google were moving in. But it was really a blue-collar town, and so there were these old guys who'd been there for years who knew how to fix stuff, seeing this town change and wondering what was going on. They had a market square and a bakery square and a weird kind of ghost town shopping mall just outside the city in a place they called Tarentum. I may have lived in Pittsburgh physically for long enough and in this letter for long enough to have basically merged the two cities in my mind and I can't really pass them apart anymore. But it was really, really like this town. Now for a note on the age. Wisdom was very important to them. Secret knowledge conspiracy theories and books by Dan Brown would have sold really well. And they were fascinated by spooky things in Corinth. They'd have gone to haunted Gaia Suta and loved it without stopping to ask whether the Bible thinks this is a good idea or not. And there have been periods in human history where maybe people weren't as interested in that stuff. There have been enlightened times in our history where the materialists seem to have control that I believe theirs was a time like ours where there was a deep fascination in, in spiritual matters and the, the otherness of the unseen realm. Organized religion 
was absolutely under threat. But individualized spirituality was very much a thing. And all of these colliding influences had an impact on the public discourse in their town. Style, I think, for them had become more important than substance. Winning was far more important than telling the truth. And what we do on Twitter, they did in the market square. And they flooded it with noise. Imagine sort of different speakers or philosophers at every sort of corner of the square making a racket and trying to gather a crowd and be more entertaining than the other person. And you see them competing for control and you look at our culture, certainly our internet culture, and you see a parallel there, don't you? So the town was a town like ours. The time was a time like ours. And the church was a church like ours. It was growing. And as they grew in maturity, and they grew in membership, people from all of these different backgrounds were coming into the church with their own expectations about how things should be done. So you have rich and poor, and pagan and Jew, and men and women, and Roman and Greek, and ascetical people with very tender consciences about exactly what your hair should look like, and what food you should eat, and what clothes you should wear, mashed with these wild libertarians who just said, smoke if you've got them, hey man, kind of hippie characters, who felt you could more or less do whatever you liked. All of these influences slammed together Risked, as our bulletin says today, a growing church growing apart. That was a threat for the Corinthian church. Imagine what it would be like to have all of those people coming into your church, to be the pastor of that church, and seeing that they all wanted different things and trying to mediate all of those things in a culture that was wired for winning far more than it was wired for compromise, and whose default thought culturally was... If I don't get my way, I'll go my way. That could easily happen here. What happened to them could happen to us. Now, before we get into the book, just a word on the, on the graphic. You know, of course, that we always try to represent in an image and maybe a byline. Essentially, the main focus of, of the letter as we see it. Uh, there are two key metaphors in the book of 1 Corinthians. You need to understand these metaphors to understand uh, a key point that he's going to make. And uh, the most obvious one is, is the body. Over and over again in the letter, Paul compares us, the church, to a body, comprised, as a body is, of variegated or various different parts. And uh, this body will either grow up into maturity or it will be chopped up into sort of amputated parts that have been removed. A secondary, less obvious metaphor, but it's in there if you uh, really look at the original language, is, is the building. And you can see here that the image of the, the human has almost been sort of offset. His arms have been chopped off a little bit. And lurking at the left in the image is a pillar. It is, of course, a Corinthian pillar. And uh, Paul uses this... Uh, image of, of the building as well. He describes himself uh, as a, a builder. He calls himself an architectron, and it's not difficult to imagine what that word would mean. Christ is described, as we just sung in the opening hymn, as a foundation. 
And we, the church, we're described as an oikodome. It means a sort of uh, a house roof or a, a sort of a sphere over a house. Uh, I think it was a social space where you would go and, and have a drink or a meal up on the roof, a barbecue, you know, with some friends, something like that, maybe a, a dining room or a word like that. Imagine our parlor after this service, the fireplace is lit, the coffee is warm, and we're having a snack and we're drinking and we're reflecting on things, talking about the sermon, talking about our lives, talking about our health, uh, catching up with each other, how did the thing go with your sister, all that kind of thing. Imagine what we do in the parlor, and indeed the parlor itself, as a living, active metaphor for what the church can be. That's Paul's image for us. And now imagine if we place the communion table in that room and you start to see what the Corinthian church looked like. Intimate. The sort of ceremonies of the service were brought into the warmth of the living room. That's how they were. So it's a bright city, Corinth. Spiritual age, growing diverse church. Like a body, like a building, it can grow up or it can grow apart. It can be built up or it can fall apart. And now we're going to have a sermon. So let's turn to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So this is a letter from Paul and some other bloke with the authority of Christ to write it. And for any of you watching that wonderful series on Hulu by Ryan Reynolds, the documentary about Wrexham Football Club. Imagine Sosthenes, the sort of uh, Rob McElhaney of Corinth. And that is actually a very, very, very good joke, and it lacks just one thing, I believe, and that is relevance. I don't think anyone's watched the show. <laughs> but it's just for my wife. She'll be here at the 11, and she will absolutely love that joke, and that's a preacher's indulgence. To the church of God, it belongs to him. Do watch that show, by the way. It's brilliant that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The Corinthian church has two identities. One, it is Corinthian, and two, it is Christian. There's always going to be local idiosyncrasies. The Corinthian church is not the Philippian church, because it's not in Philippi. It's got its own Corinthian qualities. Uh, that's okay. Article 34 of the Articles of Religion, which you'll find towards the back of the Red Book of Common Prayer in front of you, says this. It is not necessary that traditions and ceremonies be in all places one and utterly like, for at all times they have been divers and may be changed according to the diversities of countries, times, and manners. Not all places are alike. Not all towns are the same. Not all times are the same. And so churches and towns and times are going to vary in all sorts of different ways. That's okay. But whatever its Corinthian identity might have been, there are some identities that do not change and cannot change wherever and whenever you are, and those are the ones to do with Christ. He is your primary identity. Whatever team you support, whatever music you listen to, whatever clothing you wear, and far less superficially than any of that. 
whatever you might have achieved, whatever successes you've had in this world, whatever certificates you have on your wall, or whatever mistakes you've made in here in your heart, whatever failings you've been a part of, or responsibilities you've got wrong in, in your heart, or maybe in your family home. All of these things, good and bad, personal preference, deeply significant things, all of them are covered equally by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are now in him. You are sanctified in Christ, made holier, made saintly, changed, transformed. And all of these things, good and bad, are covered by him, verse 2 says, together. This word together is really important. As Paul starts to talk about problems in the church, he reminds them that fundamentally they are one in Christ. They are founded on him and they are in him together. Your goal is not to win church. It is not to get your own way. It is certainly never to become your own Lord. But, verse 2, to call upon the name of the Lord, by whom and with whom and in whom and to whom we all belong together. He's our Jesus. We all belong to him. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace. It's rather a clever way to say hello. Uh, on a superficial level, grace is the Greek hello, and peace is the Jewish hello. So he's addressing two worlds in two words together. It's a brilliant way to gather them in. But more deeply, I think, in combining these greetings, which he does elsewhere, he says, I'm greeting you in grace. I'm greeting you under grace. I'm greeting you within the unmerited blessing of Jesus Christ himself. It covers over anything that you were or are or have done in the past, good or bad. It is freely given to you. You did not earn it. It cost a great price, but it was paid by him. His life in exchange for yours, to purchase for you freedom, to provide for you an inheritance. And therefore, because of this grace, you now have peace. You have a relationship with the Father. You can approach his throne boldly and with confidence. And you can rest in that truth every single second of every single day. It doesn't change or wobble or waver. This grace brings about peace. You are right with God, all of you, every single one of you. Therefore, you should be right with one another. Uh, when I worked in industry, I had a real job. I worked for an international firm. Uh, and so I had colleagues from all over the world, lots of different countries. And sometimes having people from all these different places caused a little bit of cultural tension in the way we operated. The, uh, the Japanese, we found, tended to be very easily shamed if they felt criticized in any way. Uh, and the Norwegians tended to be quite blunt, uh, even to the point of rudeness. Uh, the Brits were basically exactly halfway between these two cultures. We had very subtle and very polite ways of being devastatingly rude. And uh, so they sent us all on some cultural training. Before the training, I remember getting an email from a Norwegian colleague that was quite upsetting to me. It said, Dear Alex, 
Your work is completely unacceptable and to a very low standard. Fix it, Torben. I was, I was like haunted by this thing. I was absolutely just horrified. But uh, after the cultural training, I'm pleased to say things really changed. I remember getting a note from him that read more like this. Dear Alex, how are you? I hope you had a pleasant weekend. Your work is completely unacceptable to a very low standard. Fix it. Please give my love to your family. Regards, Torben. I, you know, I, I want to say he tried, you know. I've got to love him. He tried so hard to speak like I wanted to be spoken to. Paul is about to do a Torben. Verse 4. The nice bit. I give thanks to my God always for you, especially verse 5, for your speech and your knowledge. And verse 7, your spiritual gifts. That's lovely, isn't it? Two key characteristics of their church. It was intellectually brilliant. And as they grew in faith, they grew in knowledge. They were starting to learn more and more and more about God. And it was a gifted church. So as they grew in faith, they grew in spiritual gifts as well. Very much like our church. When I, when I took the job here, uh, nine years and one day ago, uh, when uh, I took the job here, Canon Mary Hayes, who was uh, a minister in our diocese at the time, she said, here's something you need to know. It's a very clever church. Okay? They, they like clever stuff. They want to dig into it. I like preaching there, she said, because they, they kind of track with what you're saying. They're, they're bright people. And uh, I found that to be true a few years ago. We also did a spiritual gifts exercise with the vestry. And what we discovered was that every single spiritual gift lifted in, listed in Scripture was evidenced among that body of nine people, as it was at the time. All of them, even the crazy ones. Isn't that cool? Uh, crazy gifts, I mean, not, not of course, vestry members. <laughs> Clever church. Gifted church. But it's a bit of a slapdown, thank you, from Paul. It's a Torben email, perhaps, because he gives... Thanks, not for what they've achieved, but for what they've received. <laughs> it's a hint. It's a hint at another problem in this church. It's always going to be a problem for clever churches and gifted churches in growing cities and gilded cities at individualized and spiritualized times. And that is we can easily get a bit too full of ourselves, can't we? Bit of a big head. It's very easy to go from, aren't we great, to aren't I great. doesn't take long. And then in verse 10, he just comes out and names it. By the way, church, just as an aside, I, I love preaching in this church. I say verse 10 and everyone looks. I just love that. That's great. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds a bit like an exorcism, doesn't it? You know, whoa, what's coming? Full authority here. This is like a Gandalf. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you in the name of Jesus Christ, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me, uh-oh, by Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Their growing church is growing apart. There are divisions opening up. The word division uh, means schism, schisma. 
uh, an opening up. There are cracks appearing in the bones of the body. And there is quarreling, he says, contention, wrangling, strife. There's a kind of you know, writhing, cramping gut rot going on within the body of the church. People trying to get their own way. People trying to make it their own church so that they can become, of course, their own lords. Do not share this book because I see very much of that happening in our church. But I share this book lest we see it happening in our church. For Paul, the church is a body comprised of different parts, but it belongs together as a whole. The church is like a body. I think what their church is experiencing right here is growing pain. It's an adolescent church. Uh, we nearly called this series uh, that awkward middle school stage of church or something like that. Awkward middle school church. Uh, it's come a long way, this church. It's not a baby, but it's not fully formed. It's still got a ways to go. It's doing well. And uh, you know what it's like, don't you, when, when, when kids are at that age. You know, my son has the same size feet as I have, but I've had my feet be that size for like 35 years or something. He's had it for like 35 seconds, so he sometimes falls over them because they're longer than they were yesterday. It's uh, awkward being a middle schooler. Uh, anyone here with teenage kids, of course, or uh, grandkids maybe, will know that those teenagers go to bed eventually. And then the next day, they wake up sometime around noon longer, just much bigger. Some of you are at that stage, much bigger than, than, than you were. And you put on a pair of pants that fit perfectly yesterday, and you put them on, and there's like skin showing. You're like, what? Look at that, like a half-mast. It's so, it's so weird, isn't it? Uh, and all this skin on show. Teenagers, of course, are very drawn to skin being on show, I've discovered. And teenagers are in pain all the time. Growing pains, their limbs ache, uh, hunger pains, you've got to feed this machine, social pains. Uh, I want to say you'd be in pain if your leg grew a whole inch overnight, wouldn't you? But what you wouldn't do, I think anyone in this room, if your growth plates were aching, is say to yourself, well then, I guess I better chop them off. That'll make the problem go away. You wouldn't do that, would you? That would make no sense whatsoever. It's not easy to grow. It hurts. It's painful. And everything in our culture screams at us, pain is bad. Dull the pain. Medicate. Do something to make it go away. Find something easier. Leave. Run away. Or fight and make the ones hurting you leave and then you'll be okay. But remember, we are not just a body. We are the body of Christ. And in verse 13, Paul says, is Christ divided? Different word for divided now, much stronger. It means cut into parts. Is our Lord butchered up like that? Is he amputated? Is he at odds with himself? A bit's falling off. The grammatical implication of Paul's Rhetorical question is, of course, no. And if you are in him, to be removed from the body of Christ 
by his choice or your own is to be removed from the source of life, you'll decay, you'll rot, you'll putrefy if you're not attached to him. Verse 8, he will sustain you to the end. It's a building term. It means to establish or make firm. Uh, the, the old English word or translation for this word sustain is establish. And you get a hint there, don't you, that the word establish and establishment is like the word uh, stabilize or make stable. A kind of similar architectural word. Rather clever. He will make firm stabilize and establish you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day that we looked at in the book of Joel, judgment day, is the one in view. If you're in Christ, what this means is on the day of Christ, when Christ looks at you, he sees himself. He sees his own body. A body, though it died, was raised. His body the true temple building that was raised after three days is yours. And the reason why he died is because he was judged and he rose because he was vindicated. And if you are in him, that means you will be too. There can be no judgment. It's why we have peace. Because of the grace. We just have an identity on that day just an identity of grace and peace, the identity of Jesus Christ himself, together. There's a really long way to go in this book. It is my favorite book. I, I sat down this morning to remove 200 words from my sermon. I added an extra 100, and I apologize. But verse 9 says this, and we'll end with it. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.